and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we showcase 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. This week, I am very excited to introduce not one, but two special guests. Uh, Dora Petterbridge, the Curator of United States and Commonwealth Collections at the National Library of Scotland, and Dr. Patrick Hart, Assistant Professor in the Department of English Literature at Bill Kent University, Ankara. He is founder and editor of the Journal of the Northern Renaissance. Dora and Patrick are here because they are two of the editors of Henrietta Liston's Travels, the Turkish Journals, 1812 through 1820, a scholarly edition of Henrietta Liston's journal and other writings on Turkey that relate to her time as a diplomat's wife in the Ottoman Empire. Thank you, Dora and Patrick, for joining me. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Dora, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about your work as the curator at the National Library of Scotland, uh, as well as your work with Liston's papers? Yes. Well, in fact, usually I get only to work with print and not with manuscripts and archives. Ah. My main job is to develop the National Library's printed international collections, specifically relating to the United States, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and South Asia. But we have a special focus at the library on Scots travel and Scots abroad and the Scottish diaspora. So working my way and from that topic, um, I found Henrietta Liston and began working on her papers a few years ago, looking at her life in America, because that's where it ties to my the kind of core of my core of my role. So, Patrick, I know your research background is in lyric poetry in England and Scotland in the Renaissance. Um, How did you become involved in the Henrietta Liston project? Quite by chance, really. (laughs) Um, So I was working on, I'm very interested in an early 17th century Scottish poet, William Drummond of Hawthornden. And uh, um, most of his papers are held at the National Library. So I was there on a fairly regular basis whenever I was back from, from Turkey. And... One of these times when I was uh, visiting the library to to look at Drummond's manuscripts, I was chatting with Dora. We'd become friends a, a while before that when I was uh, studying in Edinburgh. I think I think it was then she mentioned about that she was looking at travel writings and documents relating to Scottish travellers around Constantinople and Naples. So I. Uh, Liston was sort of flagged up as somewhere vaguely on the horizon, something I might want to look at at some point. Um, And then Dora started working on the Liston papers more seriously, and in particular on the American material. She mentioned to me this, all all these papers relating to her, her time in Turkey, and that, you know, there's not nearly so much funding available, unsurprisingly, for work relating to Turkey and the Ottoman Empire compared to the money that's there for research on the the early years of uh, the United States. So I I think it started one day I just thought well I'll order up this manuscript you know have a look out of curiosity maybe I'll know somebody who might be interested in working on it and then I just got I got sucked in it was so fascinating and and this archive was um, so rich that it just seemed remarkable that nobody was working on this. What I got, Patrick, is the, that it was remarkable that nobody was working on her time in the Ottoman Empire. The focus had been so much on the listings in the United States and the Ottoman side of the chapter of their story had been neglected. And really, it is 
richer in many ways than um, what we know about their time in the US. And they were certainly there for longer. They were spent longer in Turkey than they did in the US. It had just been slightly forgotten, I think, until Patrick came along and <laughs> invigorated everybody. <laughs> and and this, this, so this archive, I think, Dora, am I right in saying that the official name of the archive is the, the Robert Liston Papers? Yeah, that's the Robert Liston Papers. And, and this contains all the documents relating to Robert Liston's diplomatic career. And Henrietta's papers are sort of bundled in there yeah. um, along with Robert's. Yeah. They're not a, a sort of separate uh, archive within mm -hmm. that. And Robert has been quite well researched, you know, way back. Um, and his diplomatic papers are well known, but Henrietta's journals were not so well known. I feel like that's a good sort of jumping off point to talk, yes. to introduce Henrietta and Robert Liston to people who won't know who they are. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that um, is important to say is we really only know about Henrietta. Well, we definitely only know about Henrietta because her life is recorded within her husband's papers so that's how she exists for us as this extraordinary historical subject at all mm. um she's not your usual candidate for research literary research historical research she's middle class she was born in antigua in 1751 she was from a very ordinary family with no political links, no literary links, no diplomatic links, or certainly not aristocratic. And she was orphaned when she was eight. So she left Antigua to go and live with guardians in Glasgow in Scotland. She lived in kind of, you know, very modest fashion uh, in the east end of the city until she was 44 years old, mm -hmm. uh, just with her, um, with her guardians. And she did not think that, well, she actually uses the phrase, she did not think that love and marriage were in her plan of happiness. Um, she'd had her eye on Robert for a while. So <laughs> she'd known him, I think, think from the 1780s, from her mid-30s, perhaps. Although their courtship is slightly mysterious. That's one of the things that isn't documented so well in the archive. Um, but she had very deep feelings for him. There's one letter which um, gives us evidence for that. Uh, and Robert was several years her senior, so he, he was well into his diplomatic career by the time she knew him. He had been posted all over Europe. And she certainly didn't think that her life was going to be transformed. And suddenly, and I'm not sure still quite how it happened, but in 1796, in February 1796, they got married in Glasgow. Robert had just been appointed British Minister to the United States, second person to hold that position, obviously after the um, end of the War of Independence. And they got married and immediately left to sail to New York. And then that's her kind of entrance into the diplomatic world. And then she really starts to be seen in the archives. That's when her letters um, is suddenly, you know, all there for us. Robert had a very long diplomatic career, so even though they married quite late on, she got almost 30 years worth of experience as a diplomat's consort. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't, Robert didn't retire till late on in his 70s. So they were quite senior and, you know, she had this transformed life where she traveled extensively. And by the time we meet her in 1812 uh, in the Ottoman Empire, she's been 
to the United States, to Canada, to the West Indies, to Sweden and Denmark and other places in Europe, has written journals, the American journals obviously, but also travel, she's also done travel writing about Europe and copious letters of hers exist documenting her life. The Liston's kept everything and it's, it's vast really. There are 177 volumes of manuscripts and it's everything from official dispatches and diplomatic documentation and all sorts of grand documents and then teeny tiny little receipts or notes, very ephemeral materials um, that exist alongside and are you know, as equally valued. So we have an amazing record of all of her choices and her relationships um, and her experiences ranging from what she liked to buy you know, for her garden to what she ate, and then her high-level kind of political interactions. Do you get the impression that she was keeping this because she knew that this was historically significant and she intended for it to be published someday? I know a lot of travel diaries were written with the intention of being published at some point, or obviously is it a mix? I mean, I think that's, um, that's a question we've thought a lot about. In terms of the wider archive, they kept it as part of almost Robert's diplomatic duty to save everything that represented his you know, financial expenditure while he was in post, all of his correspondence. So they did save all the paperwork from their lives equally. But then sitting within that, we have thought about whether the journals maybe were something different and whether she had, you know, ideas for them. Yeah, I, I speculated a little bit about this in the introduction to the uh... Um, to the book. My, my suspicion is that this wasn't intended for print publication, at least. The main manuscript of Liston's travel journal does look like it was at least intended initially to be perhaps a, a clean copy written up to be perhaps shared in, in an intimate family circle and perhaps among, among friends. She does make some reference to perhaps reading her journal with one of her friends in, in one of her letters home. We've talked about the extent of these papers and how interesting they are. Can you give some examples of how you think they can be valuable to scholars of a variety of subjects? So this is, this is one reason that we realized fairly early on that we needed an expanded editorial team to deal with uh, this because they're simply, these papers have so much potential for so many different fields, I think. Primarily, perhaps, firstly, diplomatic history. Um, and so we were very lucky at Bill Kent University, where I work, um, in the history department, Kenneth Weisbrod, um, who's a diplomatic historian working on the new diplomatic history, which is a, a movement within diplomatic history that shifts the focus a bit from the sort of grand conferences and the men <laughs> um, to an a greater emphasis, I think, on paradiplomatic events, the diplomacy that happened behind the scenes um, that often involved um, wives, consorts, family members, um, all those sort of social events and networks through which, in many cases, the real diplomacy happened. And I think I'm sure still still happens. So, so Ken came on board and has contributed a, a, a really nice section to the introduction that, that looks at how Liston's journals and letters can inform uh, work in, in that field of the new diplomatic history. I think for, for Ottoman historians of the Ottoman Empire, this is a fascinating resource. It's an outsider's eye in, um, but an outsider who clearly um, was plugged into 
the Ottoman world in ways that not many foreign visitors or residents were, I think. So we brought uh, Uzden uh, Merjan came on board and she's uh, also contributed a, um, a section, a, a wonderful section to our introduction, giving some of the background to the, the Ottoman scene when, when the Listons arrive in 1812. Liston has lots to say in particular, I think, about the minority communities in, in Istanbul, the Armenians, um, the Jews, the Greeks. Um, and their relations to um, to sort of power relations, power networks within the Ottoman Empire. So, so for historians, there's there's a huge amount there. Now, I'm I'm not a historian, <laughs> um, so I'm perhaps better placed to talk about how fascinating Liston is as a writer, uh. um, and I think as a, in particular as a um, where she fits in in travel writing and particularly women's travel writing about the Orient, particularly the Ottoman Empire. Now, again, Liston is writing a little later than the sort of works I, I normally focus on. Um, so Valerie Kennedy, another Bill Kane colleague, who's, who's a real expert both on, she's written on Edward Said's Orientalism, and I think this ties into debates about Orientalism in some very interesting ways. But in particular, Valerie's really sort of situated Henrietta Liston's writing in relation to earlier and later women's travel writing about Turkey. Um, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who you know is a fascinating foil for Liston because she's working, she's writing a hundred years earlier. She too is an ambassador's wife um, in in Istanbul. Um, but also writers who are perhaps slightly less well known, like Elizabeth Craven, Julia Pardo, and Annie Jane Harvey. Um, all of whom published travelogues uh, about their experiences traveling to Turkey and, and living there. Fascinating. Um, I, I, I like the point you mentioned earlier about how diplomacy is not necessarily, there's a lot of, um, obviously men were diplomats, but a lot of diplomacy does happen at things like dinner parties and places where uh, women would be involved. And um, from what Dora said earlier, it doesn't seem particularly surprising that maybe uh, someone who's been made a diplomat might get married pretty quick before <laughs> for the help. I think um, that's obviously, that seems to me like maybe one of the reasons they got married. Yes. No, I think that um, is likely, especially going to the United States at that time. Um, I think it was felt that maybe it was time for Robert to, you know, have somebody with him to socialize with, you know, to socialize with and meet Martha Washington and all the other women of Philadelphia and New York. Yeah. And this is, this is slightly off topic, but just really quickly, um, when you're talking about women's travel writing sort of as a style, is mm -hmm. there something that, um, does does Liston sort of fit the sort of bill for the way women generally write about travel, or is there anything sort of unique about the way that that she wrote about? Ooh, that's a big question, uh, yeah. <laughs> and Valerie would be better placed to answer it than I am, I'm afraid. But um, I mean, what's what's really fascinating for me is the contrast with somebody like Mary Wortley Montague, who again, sort of connecting with what Dora was saying before. You know, Montague is aristocratic, witty, capable of being very dismissive. Connected, uh, very well connected. connected absolutely. Yeah. Um, whereas Liston's much more, I think, much more grounded, much less interested in herself, perhaps. Um, but I, I think as well, I mean, 
the listeners also were in Norway and Sweden. Denmark, am I right? Denmark, yeah. Uh, Liston also wrote about her experiences there. And they make a fascinating contrast or comparison with Mary Wollstonecraft, who, of course, wrote famous letters from, from her travels there. But again, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to claim that Liston is in, in the same order of writing as, as Mary Wollstonecraft, but it is fascinating to see how much she's sort of turned outward towards, towards the world she's seeing, far less introspective, at, at least in these journals. Interesting. Uh, um, it sounds yeah. like maybe there's a little bit of uh, something to argue about class and the comparisons and things like that as well. Absolutely, I think. I, I, I think it's perhaps also significant that there's, you know, the question of age. Liston's in her in her sixties when she when she travels, whereas Wollstonecraft and Lady Mary Montagu are both in their, I think, in their twenties. I'd probably be writing more about myself in my twenties as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so now to sort of focus in on the particular letter that we're going to be reading today. So she's writing to her, her nephew, Dick Ramage, March 6th, 1813. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is going on in Liston's life at this moment? Well, she's been in Constantinople in Turkey for about nine to 10 months. So they arrived, she and Robert arrived in the summer of 1812. Great ceremonial arrival, rode up the um, Bosphorus by at the expense of the Sultan, a whole kind of ceremonial event. And then quite quickly, they are pretty much in lockdown in the British Embassy because there's a significant plague outbreak in the city of Constantinople. It was one of the most severe epidemics, actually, that coincided with almost all of their time um, in the city. So there's that to deal with, as well as being new to Turkey, they're dealing with this um, epidemic. And she's also, Henriette is also at this time learning the ropes of the European diplomatic corps in Constantinople, finding, as we'll see from the letter, who she can and can't socialize with, who their allies are and um, who their enemies are. Robert says something quite interesting uh, about Henrietta during um, the the Turkish chapter. He says that uh, she's a good diplomatic consort and that she has to keep up a friendly intercourse with all mankind. So this is her her main job, uh, is to be hostess and um, friend and impart of information and, um, you know, offer of entertainment for all the merchants and diplomats and travelers and artists who are passing through uh, the British embassy doors. And there were all sorts of people uh, coming to the listings for help and assistance and entertainment and hospitality. The other thing is about um, Henrietta, she's a botanist. She's a really, really keen, skilled botanist. And one of the things she did when she came back from the US is create an American garden at her home in Scotland, Milburn Tower. And so she's sending specimens of plants and seeds and bulbs back from wherever she is in the world to that garden and cultivating a really international, um, almost like a botanical journal. So she does mention the garden, the embassy garden, and that was one of her main amusements when she was in Turkey and uh, quite a significant undertaking, I think, and it became quite famous for how well it was planted. So yeah, she's, um, 
she's handling all sorts as well as the as well as the political situation overarching everything i was not expecting to hear that she started a garden during this time that actually yeah <laughs> uh, is uh that's really interesting um so just for a little bit more context uh can you tell me anything about her nephew and her relationship with her nephew who she's writing to so Dick Ramage is one of Liss, Robert Liston's five nephews. Uh, the time she's writing to him, Dick is about 36 years old, and he's looking after the Liston's estate, Milburn Tower, which is just outside Edinburgh in Scotland. So when they correspond with him, there's often um, a lot of exchange of news from home, how how things are going on the estate, family news, neighbours, events in neighbours' lives, that kind of thing. But this letter shows us that she's also updating uh, really her whole family as well as Dick on, on how, how they're getting on in, at the Sublime Port in, um, in Constantinople. I think that they were relatively close. We don't actually know an awful lot about Dick Ramage. He died just a few years after this letter was written. So he died relatively young. Uh, but she was um, quite close to her to her, all her nephews, and definitely grieving when when Dick died of consumption. But I think their main their main exchanges, looking at their correspondence overall, is about Henrietta's beloved garden. That's really the, where they um, chat the most uh, in the the twenty or so letters that still exist between them. But this is the best letter. <laughs> Definitely the best one. <laughs> Uh, and as okay, so that's sort of the personal life who yeah. she's writing to. What are the major political issues that that are relevant to Constantinople at this time? Uh, in terms of Ottoman politics, you've got uh, Mahmud II is is Sultan, um, a man Liston describes in a journal as a man of talents, but also a, a bigot. Um, he's um, he's trying to put in place sort of new reforms. Or, or, or really building on, on the reforms that uh, his predecessor, Selim III, had put in, who tried to establish a, a new order, but who had been dethroned uh, five years, six years, 1807, six years uh, previously, in a, a coup led by the, the Janissaries. Um, and, and this was, you know, the, the power of the Janissaries was a, was a big sort of political issue in that Mahmud II had to struggle with, and he eventually succeeds in in disbanding the the Janissaries. And um, so he's at this point he's look he's really sort of reasserting his his reasserting the Sultan's authority in um, in the Ottoman Empire. More internationally, of course, we've got as as we'll see the the war between betwixt Russia and France. You know, Napoleon's great uh, disastrous invasion of of Russia and the retreat from Moscow uh, and, and all the fallout that, that follows from that. Dora, do you want to say something about the ambassadors who are arrived? Yes. So I think one of the issues that the Lestons deal with is this, well, this issue of who they're against and who they're with. So in this letter, the French ambassador count Antoine Francois Andreossi arrives and this is a big occasion. His uh, arrival's been anticipated and he's certainly not on the same side 
as the Listons. So this is one of the issues in Constantinople and one of the things that causes Robert Liston a great deal of trouble. So we hear about him in the letter. There's also the ambassador Italinsky, who is the Russian ambassador, who Liston worked, who Robert Liston worked quite closely with, and he also uh, is mentioned in the letter. So the Liston's status and place within the European diplomatic corps in Constantinople is shifting at this point and still being negotiated and worked out in quite an urgent way. Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a delicate balancing yeah. game going on, especially in relation, yeah. sort of relations between Britain and Russia, wanting to keep, keep Russia um, on side, but not mm. <laughs> allow Russia, Russian influence uh, to expand too yes. greatly. And Robert Liston's kind of his main instructions really from the British government is he has to preserve peace and also protect the Anglo-Ottoman trading relationship. So those are his two main uh, priorities. Uh, so that's also the, the background to their time there. All right. Well, I think that's you've done a lovely job setting up the context. Uh, and let's dive into the letter. Terror of Constantinople, 6th of March, 1813. My dear Dick, your letter of July, which reached me, I think, in September or October, found us prisoners within our garden walls, and in all the horrors of apprehension, the plague having by that time completely surrounded us. Our back gate opened into a burying ground, in which the graves were so numerous and so fresh that it resembled a new ploughed field. By the by, in time of health, these burying grounds are extremely interesting, but become serious evils during the plague. When I say burying grounds, I talk of every empty space in the towns and their neighbourhoods. At each grave of any distinction, a stone is placed, on end, crowned with a turban which, from its form, denotes the rank of the deceased. The remainder is filled with inscription, generally passages from the Quran, and all is painted and gilded in the gayest manner. At the back of each stone there is a cypress of a magnificence to astonish. These cypresses form beautiful groves which are in summer filled with the turtle doves whose constant melancholy note accords so sweetly with the cypresses, while the scene is so singularly enlivened by the painting and gilding of the turbans and inscriptions. During the plague, all this beauty for the time disappears. The bodies, and they often died a thousand a day, are usually placed very little below the surface of the ground and often without coffins. Sometimes the dogs, which form one of the nuisances of the country, dig them up, and at all times, the heat occasions a smell worse than disagreeable, for it carries death along with it. From this shocking scene, we retired late in October to the village of Belgrade, 12 miles from Pera. Belgrade is the Elysian fields of Lady Waterley Montague. It is, allowing for her high coloring, a very charming Greek village in the midst of an immense forest, beautifully diversified, with green meadows, lakes, streams and fountains, and surrounded with wooded hills. This country certainly is the most beautiful in the world, but with a thousand inconveniences and at least an equal number of uglinesses. I pass my hours pleasantly enough. I can and do read or write more than I ever did in the same space of time. We scarcely ever dine with our family alone and seldom drink tea without company. We walk when the weather allows it and then often make calls for we pay no other visits except in 
summer to Bukdere, to the Russian, Spanish, Swedish and Sicilian ministers from all the rest of the diplomatic corps and their friends, the war excludes us. Our house is large and charming, our garden extensive, and we begin to dress it up. The view from the top of our house, even from the windows of our drawing rooms, is well worthy the pencil of an artist. We are out of your world, it is true, but we are in the oriental one. The posts from Persia, from Baghdad, from Smyrna, vessels from the Greek and Mediterranean islands, all less or more interest us, to say nothing of that from Vienna which gives us very early news from Paris. And just in the middle of that last sentence there, uh, Henrietta writes in parenthesis, we are now eating honey from Athens, the produce of Mount Hymettus, but alas, no butter. Well, that's a good break point there. I think it's interesting that her description of the plague and the burial grounds are simultaneously so like visceral, but also beautiful. <laughs> There's there's something funny about the way she she sort of breaks off almost from this as as you said this you know the horror of this scene of you know the back gate opening into a burying ground with these you know fresh graves everywhere and then just oh by the by in time of health these are extremely <laughs> interesting which I think is quite like her she you know she can break off in the midst of horrors so so tell me more about this the section of the letter what 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 strikes you as interesting i think it's what she talks about doing it's her activities are quite revealing um and her her detailing of who she's who she sees and who she meets which speaks to the shifting power relations the russian the spanish and the sicilian ministers we can we can socialize with uh, but there are others who they who they could not and then that wonderful sentence about we are out of your world, it is true, mm-hmm. but we're in the oriental one. That standout sentence, how she's describing being in a different world from the one that her nephew inhabits back in Scotland. And that's also specific to her Turkish experience about no other country does she ever write that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you you brought up uh, the word orientalism came up earlier in the talk. As far as Liston's perspective of this Orient world that she is currently in, do you feel a lot of sort of judgment or alienness, or do you think she's honestly really trying to understand what's going on around her? There's a contrast between her reactions to the real Turk she's meeting and how she'll write sometimes when she's taking a step back and describing the sort of the wider political scene or or political events. Um, I think in the in the second half of the letter we'll see a, a nice example of this. She can fall into the worst sort of orientalizing tropes from time to time, both in her letters and in her journals. But for the most part, she doesn't. She's she's genuinely curious and obviously relishes making human contacts um with the with the turks she meets particularly turkish women i think mm. uh, and there are a lot of moments i found quite moving maybe all the more moving because they're written with you know a, a fair degree of sort of wry ironic detachment in some cases but but still despite all that the 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 sheer pleasure of of communication um, yeah. and, her, and her appreciation for her mm. hosts really, I think, really shines through. You can get a little bit of a sense of humor coming through in a couple places there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I, I particularly like the 
the kind of wry glance when she's referring to Lady Wortley Montague. And again, I think I think someone who is more self-consciously literary in her writing might be more sort of caught up in how they were engaging with, say, Montague's writings. Whereas I think for, for Liston, she clearly has an appreciation for Montague. She's clearly read her. Um, she alludes to her fairly frequently, I'd say, in, in her journals and, and her letters. But again, that sort of wry qualification, it is allowing for her high colouring a very charming Greek village. <laughs> um, I, I think, and, and then, you know, again, this is typical listen, I think, because then she goes on to, to give a, a really sort of beautiful description in the midst of an immense forest, beautifully diversified with green meadows, lakes, streams and fountains and surrounded with wooded hills you actually you really get a sort of a, a picturesque vision with with just a little hint of the sublime in, in that you know image of the immense forest i think she's a much better writer than i suspect she would give herself credit for i'm i'm tempted to say something about her her love of honey and oh, uh, yes. <laughs> missing the butter but maybe we can save that and see how we're doing <laughs> Uh, that was that was very relatable. Alas, yeah. no butter. <laughs> Shall I continue, Catherine? Yes. Okay. But the circumstance which has most interested and occupied us is the war betwixt Russia and France. Bonaparte's being fairly beat off the field, half his army having perished in their retreat from cold and hunger, he must now, it is probable, yield to the wish of the Emperor of Austria whose advice is a general peace and who stands in a position to enforce it. We are not without our political embarrass here. The Turks, besides their general contempt of all Christian powers, particularly hate the Russians and fear the French. England and Austria are the only governments they at all confide in. Andreossi arrived as ambassador extraordinary soon after us. Andreossi's first orders were to prevent the peace. For that, he was much too late, as Mr. Liston had been to make it. His most important step was to renew the war, and the Turks having in truth made a very disadvantageous peace, it required some address to counteract him. Thus the summer was passed in discontent, irritation, and ill humor. This was wound up by the two most atrocious executions of the Greek princes, Marusis of all which I hope the French ambassador's conscience is clear, but I would not exchange consciences with him. Yet it must be confessed that this savage and despotic nation make less accounts of men's heads than of anything else in their kingdom. The late wonderful successes of the Russians against the French, aided by Italinsky and Mr. Linston, begin to open the eyes of the Turkish government. And the ensuing summer must, I think, decide the fate of the world. If the French continue the war and conquer Russia, Turkey must fall, of course, and this the Sultan knows perfectly. The favourite point of Bonaparte's ambition being to be crowned Emperor of the East on the throne of the great Constantine. Did you make out your jaunt to England? Are you again in your own house? And what is more important, how is your health? And how is Sandy? For he says little of himself. Mr. Liston begs to be affectionately remembered to you all. I wrote to Sandy last week. Write soon and fully. 
Yours most affectionately, Henrietta Liston. Well, that was a very well-written summary of politics at the time, <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> All right. So how, how accurate would you say Liston's take of the political scene is at this particular moment? I think it's, it's in some ways, it's a difficult question to answer. But I think, I think given, given what she could know at, at this time and given you know, the speed at which news moved or didn't move, yeah. I think I think for the most part she 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 is fairly fairly accurate. Certainly, uh, her understanding of the the sort of political situation of Andriossi's role seems mm-hmm. seems to be seems to be fairly sharp. Andriossi, the the French ambassador, when he'd come, he'd suggested that the Maurices, particularly Demetrius Maurice, the the who was the grand dragoman, the sort of translator but a dragon man was also much more than that 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 he had been in some ways pro-russian well certainly this was the report going round um and so and of course that was a constant ottoman fear was that the the greeks within the ottoman uh within the ottoman empire and within the sort of ottoman bureaucracy and the marusis are fanariots part of this the the greek elite um, within the Ottoman Empire, the suspicion is that on partly on grounds of sort of religious kinship, if I can put it like that, um, that the Greeks might be inclined to favour the Russians. Ultimately, this this resulted in these executions of um, the the two Marusis and and her suggestions. You know, she says all of which I, of all of which I hope the French ambassador's conscience is clear but I would not exchange consciences with him. I, I, I think she knows what's going on behind the scenes. She's experienced enough by this point to, to know how these things play out. She was clearly very shocked, I think, by, by these executions. Again, she hadn't come across anything quite like this you know, in America or in Denmark, I think, um, in, in her previous diplomatic career. Yeah, her her description of the savage and despotic nation makes less account of men's heads than of anything else in their kingdom. Um, I think that's... A- yeah, it, it is absolutely, you know, it, it's one of those Orientalist tropes you find again and again in sort of Western writing about, about the Orient, about the Ottoman Empire, that it's savage and despotic. And, you know, I think this is unmistakably a, an example of it being just that. Um, of course, it would be fairly easy i think to to say similar things about the british government at the same time we're not lacking in examples um it's interesting i think as well she in her letters she seems much more willing or much more likely to to talk about politics and what's going on behind the scenes and i'm not sure whether that's because she knows that her her readership, um, her family, her friends back home are going to want that kind of news. That's what they're... Um, her journal is... She does go into these affairs, but but in less detail on the whole. I did, there's such a... There's a big concept of there being such a hard split between the public and the private world of and women being de- delegated entirely to private. But just from the my work and reading women's letters from this time period, it seems like there's usually a healthy mix of these going on in these letters. Sure. When people are writing to their families, they of course want to update with family news, but there's also just, just news news. Um, and obviously her position as a diplomat's wife makes that all the more relevant and her more knowledgeable about it. But uh, I think this is just a great letter. And there's that little mix of family news and questions about people's health that you always get in these letters. 
And she's she's absolutely unapologetic about talking about politics as well. To either of you, what is something that you think is really significant about this letter that it'll add to the historical record that you think people might might get out of it? One thing is what we've just been talking about. Yes. That that willingness to talk about politics, the way she's working in these, you know, paradiplomatic situations, spheres. How informed she was, yeah. How informed she was, how how confident and writing with an authority of knowledge and um and a definite sense of her place within everything and her you know her joinedness to robert in what they were doing and both of them as a couple being this influential force and that's quite remarkable for a woman who didn't come from any background of influence i think the way she she so often writes we Mm. rather Mm. than i or you know mr liston my husband is doing this it's time and time again in both the journals and letters it's it's we and anything particularly evocative. Well, Patrick, when you and I were talking earlier about the kinds of subjects she covers in this letter, it's that, I think we've touched on this before, but it's the combination of the high stakes and then the very kind of natural everyday occurrences, um, which is how we all communicate uh, with each other um, and that kind of connectedness of all those things. But also for us now, all of these international relationships, Turkey and Russia, um, and the plague, uh, you know, an epidemic, a pandemic, it's got so many uh, resonances, this letter for us. Yeah, surprising, surprising number of things that have not changed, yeah. actually. <laughs> not being able to socialize. <laughs> yeah, being confined to your garden walls or, you know, flat <laughs> apartment, yeah. <laughs> So you're, you're coming out with a print edition of Henrietta Liston's travels, the Turkish journals, 1812 through 1820. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is also paired with a larger digital project. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. What we wanted to do is to make the original manuscripts digitized and available alongside the printed version um, that's just been published. So I think, Catherine, you mentioned earlier that we had digitize and put available online all of the American writings that Henrietta produced and they've now been joined by the collection of digitized Turkish journals to coincide with the publication of this book but that also informed our editorial decisions. One reason we we did this is partly because I think this is interesting material for scholars working in so many different fields or, or, and also just general readers that certainly some um, scholars sort of more interested in textual studies um, in women's manuscripts we knew would want to see the, the manuscripts themselves um, and so it was really important to us to make those available and it's worth mentioning maybe that they're all open access freely available online and, and the manuscripts are just fantastic as well they're they're full of you know you, you do get a different sense I think from reading them with all her, to our eyes now, I think eccentric underlinings, the, the marginalia, the little insertions. But these do mean that it's, especially for the, the reader not used to, to manuscripts, it's, it's a challenge to read. And I was also very aware that this was likely to be of interest to Turkish readers. And that text, even with a, with a transcription alongside its it's not accessible to, to to everybody, and it's you know, even for myself. It's it's not something that's 
always easy to read for, for pleasure. And that's why we decided to go for a modernized text within the book to make something as, as readable as possible. Alongside that coupling of, of print and digital, we wanted to give um, other perhaps non-academic readers different ways in to Liston's text. So we've got um, a collection of long reads and creative responses on the online resource from journal journalists and uh, novelists and scholars, um, people who could bring different perspectives to Liston's writing. Um, and so they're there to widen the context and to give people different points of access. And we've also created a digital mapping application which covers Liston's American travels and her travels through Europe to the Ottoman Empire. And so using that, people can then visualize exactly where she was and click through from specific places on the map to her descriptions of them in the digitized manuscripts. So we try to really kind of um, break open the manuscripts uh, with all these different responses and, and applications, digital applications. That is fantastic. I think we're really entering some of the, the big questions of documentary editing and making manuscripts available to the public and different ways of coming out of manuscripts. So this all is very exciting. Um, so thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you, Catherine. Great thank fun. You. To my listeners, thank you very much for uh, listening to another episode. I will have show notes and links to some of these exciting projects in in the show notes and on the webpage. So, as always, uh, I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.